Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm bringing you episode 200 of this pod. And unbelievably, my co-host Joseph Cacharo cannot be here for this episode. Uh, he is just back from a reporting trip. So in his stead, I figured it was only right to bring back another former host of this podcast who has since moved on to smaller and worse things on the full-time Raptors beat first at Yahoo Sports. Now uh, he's got his own radio show on the Fan 590 covering the team at Sportsnet. My dear friend, William Liu. Will, great to have you back, man. We had you on for episode 100. We got you on for 200. It's uh, it's tradition at this point. Yeah, no, I, I love that uh, my usage is now one uh, percent uh, one in every 100 episodes so that's that's awesome no it's a great honor to be back you know obviously I have a great deal of affection for this podcast and everything that you and cash do and I mean I felt like I owed you guys too because you guys came on our show as well so yeah happy to be here man it's great to have you man and I I know some of our listeners are day ones who have been with us from the start when we had the three-man booth going um, mm. but this podcast does not get off the ground without you. It does not have the name that it has without you. So, you know, I think uh, you ought to be welcome back anytime. And uh, it was great to be on your show the other day. You guys are doing such a good job, you and Alex, uh, over at the fans. So it's just always a pleasure to, to see your face, to talk ball with you. And I'm happy to have you here, man. Yeah, for sure. So I'm assuming you want me to talk about the Raptors, considering this is like my full-time job now. I mean, look, it was my full-time job at the score as well. I just don't think the score <laughs> knew it. But <laughs> I mean, yeah, I do. I don't think I would be making the best use of your your knowledge base, your skills, if I didn't hit you up with at least some Raptors questions. But I imagine that mm. you are... I mean, the season hasn't started yet, and you've been doing basically daily podcast episodes about this team. So we'll start there and then we could kind of transition into talking about the Eastern Conference more broadly. I mean, I guess just off the hop, did preseason for you change your expectations in any kind of meaningful way, whether it's about an individual player or the team as a whole? Yeah, I, I think it did. And I think the two things that I took away from preseason are that the Raptors are going to have two pieces of the rotation that maybe coming into the offseason, I wasn't as optimistic in terms of contributing. Starting with Scotty Barnes, the fourth pick. He's more ready to contribute than I first imagined because I think when you watch some of the tape of what he did in college, you're like, okay, so he can clearly defend. He could clearly play in transition. What else can he do? And honestly, I don't know how much of that was specifically answered uh, in preseason itself. But at the same time, seeing the defense for five games – and seeing him go up against guys like Jason Tatum and Bradley Beal, even Jalen Green, who a fellow rookie, but he's probably going to be the best offensive player, at least in terms of the scoring aspect. Maybe Cade has him an overall impact offensively. But um, seeing Scotty go up against those types of players game after game and, and not only do well in that role, but to be trusted by Nick Nurse to do that role, I think Scotty Barnes ended up leading the Raptors in minutes played in preseason. They're saying all the right things in terms of they want to get him into the mix and they want to use him. And he looks good. I think defensively, right away, he's going to fit exactly what the Raptors want to do. I think that's one of the issues the Raptors had in the last couple of years is they had Pascal and OG, which are two you know dream defenders to have on the wing. 
The one thing is that like they struggle to put that third wing defender next to them who can also be, you know, six nine interchangeable guard one through five. And I think Scotty really gives him that piece. And I think the only other concern I had with Scotty was like, okay, offensively, what's he gonna do? So he can't really shoot consistently right now. Um in fact he's he's better from the mid range than he is from three, I guess, which is isn't surprising. But I don't think he's hit a single three in preseason. Watching him warm up and stuff, he does seem like he has a bit of a three. So I think that that's just a small sample. I think he's 0 for 8. He'll make one eventually. But um, he's not a shooter. But at the same time, his playmaking has been really, really nice. He led the Raptors in assists in preseason. And I think that's uh, reflective of two things. I think, one, he's just a really nice passer. And he's made a number of nice assists. Like there was one play the other day where he brought the ball up uh, the floor, was pushing the pace saw that the Raptors didn't have numbers. There was five guys back for, I believe, the Wizards. And Scotty slowed down for just like an extra beat, almost a beat and a half, and then waited for the defense to sort of converge on him just slightly because they did have more defenders back than uh, the Raptors had in, in transition. And then he just threw this like casual look away, one-handed bounce pass with the ball still spinning in his hand split two defenders and led Precious Achua right to the basket for a layup, which was just like, wow, that's that's a lot of vision and skill right away for a young guy. So I think he can actually do a lot of things for the Raptors right away. I didn't think he would be a positive contributor just because I think most rookies struggle with that. But I actually do think that Scotty's body and everything like that, his physique, he's physically ready to do it. And then the other guys, Precious. I mean, look, when the Raptors finally traded Kyle Lowry in a sign and trade, right? There was, there was obviously all that talk last season about you know trading Kyle, and you know there were reports. You know the Raptors were on the one yard line at the trade deadline. It didn't happen. You know Sixers go for George Hill instead. Which I mean, listen, if you're if you're trading for George Hill to complete the championship puzzle, you you, you don't have all the puzzle pieces in the first place. And you know finally you, you trade Kyle and, and you get Precious Achua and Goran Dragic back. It doesn't seem like that great of a return in comparison sort of what was rumored out there before. But then when you see Precious play and you've seen him actually uh, showcase what he can do in preseason, he's 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 a wild player. <laughs> he's a bit wild uh, and, and maybe more than a bit. But at the same time, he's really, really skilled in terms of he can do a lot of things. I, I think it's really going to be a case where you bring him off the bench and you really use his energy well. But he can push the break as fast as pretty much any big man. In terms of just with going coast to coast with the ball in his hand, we've seen multiple times where he's able to lead the break and beat two to three defenders just in that sort of transitional uh, period. And then, you know, he's either creating for himself or he's passing it off. He's shown a, a, a scoring skill set as well. And um, I think just the two of those guys, I didn't expect them to be contributors based on how I looked at the team in the offseason. But based on preseason, those guys are going to be two of the guys that are going to play 20, 25 minutes per game in the rotation. I kind of do believe in both those guys. And then when you sort of take it all together, well, the Raptors want to do this style where they play all of these athletes at once. Maybe the shooting is a little light, whatever, but they want to have playmaking. They want to be fat. Well, definitely. You're right. Definitely. But uh, they want to be, you know, defensively versatile. And I think they have the pieces in place to do that. Offensively, it will be a struggle, especially half court. But this, this team is, this team is much improved from last year, I would say. Yeah, the Precious thing is like, I don't think he's ever hit a three in an NBA game, but I, I'm i pretty sure it was the first preseason game the Raptors played where he, I think it was like a pick and pop, and he caught the mm. ball at like the top of the circle. So he was inside the arc, but then he did like a pound dribble and hit a step back three, and I think my jaw literally hit the floor. I was like, well, <laughs> yep. you can do that? 
Um, yeah, he flashed a lot more skill than I actually thought that he had in his bag. And I'm curious to see. I mean, do you think that he superseded Ken Birch as like the number one center on the depth chart? No, I don't think so. And the reason is I don't think that Precious is good enough defensively mm. to go up consistently and be your uh, go-to rim protector. Maybe when you play different schemes, obviously the Raptors want to have all the 6-9 players on the floor at once. You can play some zone. You can sort of buff up your rim protection that way. But I just think in terms of like general pick-and-roll coverage, stuff like that, I think there is still more improvements to be made for Precious. There's still a couple of times where he gets caught in between trying to like chase the ball handler or try to stay back against the big. And in those moments, you know, you kind of end up trying to play both sides and then you end up playing neither side and either a guard's going in for a layup or they're throwing the lob to the big because you're a step far out. And so I still think Ken Birch is a lot better at, at that front. I think even when with Ken Birch coming back for preseason um, one or two games, he was not 100% because he had missed time due to COVID and he suffered a lot of symptoms and stuff like that. And so just uh, even putting aside the COVID, his conditioning wasn't the best. Even still, I thought he was better defensively than Precious. So I still think that based on what they need from that big man in, in their lineup, of course, Precious is much more advanced offensively. But Kem does more of the little things that are needed on this specific roster. So I still do expect Kem to be in that mix. Is it going to be – is he going to start from day one? I, I don't know about that just because I think he is still recovering. So maybe Precious gets it at the, at the top. But – It'll be a 50-50 split with, honestly, the Raptors could probably play some small ball as well and play neither. Yeah, which is, I don't know. This team is so weird because they're it's like, super weird. they're so big at so many positions. And yet, like at the center position, they don't have anybody taller than 6'9". They're like big and small at the same time. And I'm curious to see how that's going to work. But I sort of want to talk about like specifically four guys, because I think really when you're talking about the Raptors, like you are mostly just talking about these four guys like this is what makes the team interesting now mm-hmm. and looking toward the future and I think you know you mentioned Scotty off the top and and I include him in this mix obviously because they just picked him fourth overall and I think they see him as part of like their core long term so he is one of those guys and the other three are obviously Fred OG and Pascal and I think barring a huge free agent signing which has never happened in this franchise's yeah. history Oh, come on, man. Damari Carroll, 60 million, 2015. <laughs> what a great investment that was. Yo, who who was the best free agent signing in Raptors history? I, I love this question because, okay, because it doesn't count re-signing players because that's obviously different, yeah. right? So it's like uh, Bismack Biombo if you're looking at just like surplus value. Like, <laughs> I mean, he did get the Raptors to the conference. I mean, he didn't, he didn't personally single-handedly get them there, but he did play a big role in that Heat series in the second round of 2016. That's a good one. Um, I was pretty happy with what they had from CJ Miles that first year. <laughs> so this is where we are. Uh, yeah. Rondé for the minimum, you know, he was Rondé for the minimum was up there. A lot of social moments, you know, him talking about dinosaur fossils. Yeah, somehow, like, I, he still doesn't have an NBA job. I, he latched on with the Blazers toward the end of last season, but I still feel yeah. like he's good enough to be on an NBA roster. But yeah, the point is, I don't think that yeah. the Raptors can expect or hope that some kind of salvation is going to come from the free agent market. Like if, you know, their fate moving forward, their ability to get back to that upper echelon is going to be dependent, I think, on these four guys collectively or individually. 
And so I'm wondering from your perspective, like, do you see any of them developing into and developing is maybe an interesting word to use because, you know, Pascal is 28 now, Fred 27, like they're maybe reaching the plateau or the crescendo of their of their development curve. But like, do you see any of them becoming like a perennial all star or all NBA caliber franchise guy? And which of them do you think has the best chance to do that? Uh, I think perennial is the, I think the key word there. Cause I think some of these guys have the potential to do it once or twice more. I think Pascal, for example, has that potential. He's definitely the best player out of the four at the moment. Um, and I say at the moment, because OG seems to be really coming on strong. Mm. It really depends how good you think OG can ultimately be. Cause I think even though functionally he can make all these plays, obviously defensively elite, and he's improving his scoring skills. So that's another thing from preseason was, I mean, OG looked like a different guy mm-hmm. in terms of like, never see this guy take sidestep threes or like, you know, mid-range pull-ups or, you know, driving to the rim, reverse layup through contact. Like, it, yeah, OG has looked like a different guy. I, I, there is something about the fact that I don't think he has, I, I don't know, this sounds so like NBA Twitter, but like, you know, the the bag, you know, the wiggle, you know, what I'm, like he just doesn't have like necessarily the finesse to do it. But, of course, he compensates with that for being, like, strong as an ox. So I think he can get to most places without having to, like, you know, pull out two or three moves. So he's a close second. And then I think Scotty, like, just based on what we've seen so far, he is going to be a guy who is very impactful defensively right out of the gate. I think you could maybe even expect him to improve a little bit there, too, just in terms of just, like, executing schemes, reading possessions, reading plays. Like, there's so, like lots of rookie mistakes you see like he'll he'll over help in the post and he'll leave a shooter open or uh you know they miscommunicate on the switch and two guys go to one uh, one ball and all of a sudden someone's open you know there's things that he can clean up i think with more experience but i think if you look at the physicality in his frame if he can improve that jumper just even to a point where it's where ogs is right now which i guess is a big jump because og has improved a lot but honestly the raptors have a, a long track record of helping guys develop their shot I think honestly, Scotty's probably that guy, which does bring into an interesting question in terms of like the timeline of this group because the Raptors are already one of the youngest teams in the NBA, especially if you take out Goran Dragic, who's mostly here as a throw-in for for the Kyle Lowry signing trade. Um, he's thirty-five. Everyone else on the roster is like twenty-eight or younger, and if you really break it down, the in terms of the core guys, it's actually a divide. OG is twenty-three, and Scotty is twenty. Fred and Pascal are the next two oldest guys. And you might even think in terms of like, okay, long-term, are we going to go with this current um, timeline, which is Fred and Pascal? Those guys are in their prime right now, and their next four years are going to be the most productive years of their career. Or are you going to go with the timeline of OG and Scotty? And I think that kind of reflects in terms of what is the Raptors' strategy this season? Do they want to go for it and really try to like push all in and sort of not, not even all in, but just try to like really compete and add some pieces and stuff like that? to sort of play up the Fred and Pascal aspect and to maximize that? Or do they want to tank another season and add a third piece to that OG Scotty plus this next draft pick? And I think that's something that they can decide, I don't know, in December, in January, sort of when what the team looks like. Obviously, if they're doing pretty well. I think the Raptors have shown a willingness to just roll with it. That's one of the nice things. Is they, they know they can win and develop at the same time, but it's uh, interesting. And so I guess the long-winded answer to the question you asked in terms of which guy is going to be the most likely to be a perennial all-star, I think it's probably going to be Scotty. I mean, that, that's that got to be the hope, I think, right? Because 
not that I agree. I think OG still potentially has like a ceiling that he hasn't come close to approaching yet. You know, Pascal and Fred may be a different story, but I think, you know, we get into talking about timeline stuff with team building. And I feel like there's this kind of like misleading idea that every core piece on the team needs to be like the same age or within one or two years of each other. And it's not like Mm -hmm. Pascal and Fred aren't going to be washed when they're 30 years old. You know what I mean? And in three years from now, like top five picks become like borderline all-stars within three or four years all the time. I'm not necessarily saying that's going to happen with Scotty, but it's like he can be a hugely valuable contributor to a contending team, like in his third or fourth season. And if you have a, you know, a core group where two of the guys are 30 and then you have OG who's, who's going to be like 27 and Scotty who's going to be like 23. Like that's perfectly fine. It's not like it has to line up where everybody is, is like in the exact same age band. And I think, Honestly, often like the best teams have a, a really healthy mix of veterans and young players. And I yep. I kind of reject this idea that like it's got to be one or the other. But I'll start with Pascal because I think he he is probably the player. OG has definitely made a strong push, but I think Pascal is the player that I'm most interested in this season. And there's depth, you know, you mentioned like you think he's the best player in this group as of right now. I feel like there's been this, you know, huge groundswell of support for OG as like the Raptors' number one guy, and the preseason lent mm-hmm. a lot of credence uh-huh. to that possibility. <laughs> but I think I feel like people are sleeping on Pascal a little bit, and maybe it's just because he's mm-hmm. going to start the season on the shelf. I think it's also in large part because people were disappointed by what happened with him last season. But I just Pascal is such a unique player with such a unique development track that I feel like people don't really know how to talk about him. And I, and I, there's this perception that he was like incredible in 2019, 20 and like trash last year. And that Mm -hmm. people want to know, is he going to have this big bounce back year? And I don't really get that. Like if you look at, his numbers like his raw numbers and like all of his underlying stats he was a pretty similar player last year to the player that he was in 2019-20 like his two-point percentage was better last year his free throw attempt rate was better his play type data like as a pick and roll ball handler more efficient out of the post more efficient isolation pretty much the same and his defense like I, I don't think that there was any significant drop off defensively for him like I think early in the year the, te- the first like 10 or 15 games or so he was pretty like weirdly not that good at that end of the floor. He was fouling like crazy. And after that, like he defended as well as I think I've ever seen him defend. I remember there was a specifically a stretch like leading up to or around the all-star break where he was playing, I think the best defense of his career. So I think the one thing that you can point to, well, there are a few things, but like the three point shooting came way down last year. And that was, the biggest thing that sort of dragged down his overall efficiency was he just wasn't shooting threes nearly as well. That has ripple effects that that kind of like impact the rest of his game and his ability to kind of draw closeouts, drive by guys. But that was a big one. And then like, for whatever reason, he just didn't score effectively in transition, which mm. for a guy like Pascal just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like uh, he was, I think something like 75, fifth or 80th percentile as a transition scorer the year prior and last year it was like 25th percentile it was weird and then clutch time 
he was incredible in the clutch in 2019-20. He was very poor in the clutch last season. And I think that's the thing. That's probably the biggest reason. And, and the thing that people latched onto is like, uh, you know, what is wrong with Pascal? Why isn't he the same guy anymore? Because he had some, you know, some very high profile misses in the clutch. And, and But like when I look at that, it's like, okay, the three point shot, maybe it's not going to come back to the level where he's like shooting 37% on mostly above the break attempts. Maybe it settles in somewhere around like 33 or 34%, but I also don't think it's going to be at like 29% where it was last year. Like, I think that can come up. I don't see like his struggle scoring in transition as something that's going to be a long-term issue. And as far as being effective in crunch time, like he has a track record of doing it. So I don't see any reason why him struggling the way that he did in that area last year is something that's going to sustain. So I'm looking at him and thinking like, if people are expecting some huge bounce back season, to me, it more so just looks like the the weirdly anomalous poor performances in areas like three point shooting, crunch time scoring and transition like those all just naturally like come back up to where they typically were. And he's back to being that all star level player people saw in the past. And so, I, yeah, I don't you can let me know, I guess, where you kind of come down on that. But my feeling about it is. I think that Pascal maybe got a little bit too much credit for this, the team success in 2019-20 when I think that was primarily driven by Lowry. And then I think Lowry just wasn't nearly as good last season. And then a brunt of the blame fell on Pascal, who had maybe gotten too much credit previously and got too much blame for them struggling last season. Yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head. Like that's, I think the, the way people evaluate Pascal and sort of the not even evaluate the, the way people feel about Pascal kind of reflects like two it's just like two common biases that people have when when they assess basketball or sort of just like try to evaluate specific players so that's two things I think number one is just like people put too much stock into team success uh as you mentioned Pascal wasn't as good as people thought in his 2019-2020 season when he, you know, won second team all NBA. To be honest, I didn't actually have that big of an issue with that. I thought he should have made third team all NBA. And I thought Kyle should have made third team all NBA as well. Those guys were equivalent players to me that year. And then, you know, I don't think he was nearly as bad as he was last season, as you mentioned. What really happened was that one player doesn't actually impact that much, except for, I don't know, maybe six or seven players in the NBA. When we're talking about like LeBron. Kawhi, Giannis, KD, Luka, Steph, you know, maybe I guess you put Jokic in there, maybe the top 10 players in the NBA, they still get, provide like just this incredible level of floor raising that, you know, there's not that much variance to be had season to season because those guys are individually so brilliant and they control so much. Pascal's clearly not one of those guys. But what happened was the Raptors had a much better defensive group in 2019-2020 when you had Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka more marked than Serge, but still the two of those guys um, just being so solid in the middle of the paint. And then, of course, you had just a, a roster that really executed well around that. They were able to play really aggressively on the perimeter, but they had somebody dropping back in the paint. and did really well that season. Plus, they were just super good in the clutch. Last season, they were one of the worst teams in the NBA in the clutch. Pascal, I think, contributed to that. But at the same time, like the, the reason the Raptors cratered last year was because their defense just dropped off entirely they went from the second best defense in the nba to like league average and to be honest at times when you watched them last year you couldn't even re you couldn't even recognize what they were doing defensively because they had no centers 
at all. They ditched their centers like 10 games into the season because they realized, oh, we have Aaron Baines and Alex Len. It's it's like if you like drive out for a road trip and then like an hour outside of Toronto, you realize, oh, I actually have no like both tires in the back are shot and you just get out of the car and you just push the car the rest of the way. That's how the season felt in terms of their centers. Yeah. So it's really the Raptors as a whole were much more uh, poorly constructed last season as compared to the year before. So that's why the perceptions around Pascal changed. I actually think Pascal improved some marginal things in his game in terms of his playmaking. Yeah. I think he really did show improvements there. Um, I also think that he got to the free throw line, I think a little bit more effectively. He had an up and down season because he also had COVID which is uh, pretty important considering the fact that, yeah, that's, that's that's just a big factor. I don't know. But he did come back str- strong, and he had a number of really nice performances. And I'm thinking about the game he had against the Lakers, right? Him and Kyle, uh, just, I guess, one last ride for the two of them. Pascal had 39 points in that game, <laughs> you know, uh, in 39 minutes. Uh, you know, Kyle had something like 37 as well. They just went in there and just torched the Lakers. Um, I thought Pascal had a really nice stretch right after that game against the the Clippers as well. And then he had 44 against the, the Washington Wizards, which tied a career high. Of course, it's nothing to really score that much against the Wizards. The Wizards are really, really just like truly one of the worst defensive teams I've ever seen, But especially last year. But I, I think Pascal is still a guy who can do a lot of these things for you. He's just not going to be so good that every single season, regardless of what roster you put around him, they're going to be successful. And that's why I think that this year's roster, because they put more – pieces uh, around him i do think that they he will have an easier time i think his numbers will probably look honestly the same as it did Mm. the last two seasons but i do think the rest of the roster is a little bit more balanced one thing the raptors really struggled with last year too is just like they played stanley johnson a lot (laughs) a lot and no offense to stanley uh he's honestly was a really great quote seemed like a really good dude worked really hard but like the reality of the situation was the raptors had this big hole in the wing. Like, they didn't have a wing off the bench. And I think Utah has grown and, and developed in, in that front, Utah Watanabe. And I think that, you know, you'll maybe see a little bit more internal development from guys like uh, OG to sort of maybe even take a bigger load there. But to be honest, bringing in Scotty is going to help a ton in that front. And I just think that the Raptors are more well-constructed this year. I, I actually understand the identity of the Raptors this season as compared to last year. So, that's probably what's going to change for Pascal. Pascal himself, the only thing I really want to see from him is, well, two things. One, fully healthy because I just feel bad for the guy personally. He's just gone through so much with COVID and, and the shoulder surgery. Like, it's just stay healthy. And then the second thing is just can the three-point shot come back to a point where he's average uh, or at least a, a bit above average because that's just a big that's just a big part of what the Raptors need from him, both individually uh, for his own offense, but also just to space the floor a little bit. Yeah, 100%. And I think... You know, maybe we can segue this to talking about Scotty because you you sort of mentioned at the beginning uh, about the Raptors development staff and the necessity of developing Barnes's jump shot at some point in time. And you mentioned OG, but I think actually a better comp is probably Pascal because OG, like coming out of the draft, I guess one of the knocks on him was that he wasn't much of a shooter. But like once he arrived in the NBA, like I think in his rookie season, he was shooting like 37, 38% from deep, right? Like obviously those are all stationary threes and mostly coming from the corners, but like he was able to shoot at an NBA level right off the jump. And that doesn't seem like it's going to be the case for Barnes. It feels like it's going to be more of a Pascal-like progression. And, And it really helps that he can pass the ball as well as he can and he can handle it pretty decently as well. Like they can put the ball in his hands in order to mitigate some of the spacing concerns. 
mm-hmm. which is essentially what they did with Pascal. It took them a couple of years to get to that point with him. And I think Scotty is well ahead, you know, of where Pascal was as a rookie, obviously. But I think the outline of the same development tracker may be there, where at the beginning, it's going to be a lot of like transition focused stuff. And mechanically, I feel like there's a lot of work to do there with the jump shot. But like the goal is, the goal is kind of going to be just to get him to a point where he can be at least like competent and like at least be a marginal threat. And that took, you know, with Pascal, I think in his second season, you might remember, like he was taking a decent number of threes and shooting like 22% from downtown. Oh, he won a whole month hitting one total three. And they, they I remember it was February. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a short month, thankfully. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and and like they encouraged him to just keep taking that shot, and to his credit, he kept doing it. And uh-huh. ultimately, you know, that carried over, I think, to the following season and the season after that, where he was more or less a league average three point shooter. And not only that, but like a, a guy who was able to, from twenty eighteen nineteen to twenty nineteen twenty, completely alter where his threes were coming from. Like he went from taking basically ninety percent of his threes from the corner to like taking ninety percent of them above the break. And his three-point percentage barely changed. And obviously that, you know, took a huge dip last year, but he's proven that he could do it. So with Barnes, I think like that's obviously going to be an area of focus, but like you've mentioned, maybe not something that's going to manifest this season. So let's talk kind of like short-term, long-term with him. And Mm. I'm curious what you think his ideal offensive role is going to be for this team. Yeah, so I think ideally for this season with Scotty, I think middle of the floor makes the most sense for him. Uh, two two reasons. One, he is a guy that is a really nice passer, and middle of the floor you can just make the most possible passes from. I think others have drawn this comparison as well, but he has brought back an element that Marcus Gasol brought into this team in the sense that uh, you can give the ball to the guy at the top of the floor. Maybe he spaces the floor, maybe he doesn't. But for the most part, when you have the guy in the middle of the floor, then you can have your shooters operating off ball. I think that's one of the things the Raptors realize is, look, some of our forwards aren't the best three-point shooters. In fact, all of them other than OG and maybe Utah are, are, are poor three-point shooters or maybe just league average at best. But what we can do is that if these guys can handle the ball and they can push and things like that, they can get their shooters coming off screens and working off ball. That's one of the emphasis for all of their guards so far. And uh, you're seeing it to guys like even Malachi Flynn, who's not traditionally a guy who plays off ball. They're really trying to get him to improve off ball so he can become one of these threats. Fred is already playing that role. Goran Dragic is comfortable pretty much playing any role given his experience. And then Gary Chen and Mihailik, these guys are guys that are just natural shooting guards, so they're cool with that. So you, you, you probably want Scotty in the middle of the floor to sort of set up guys pick guys out. I think that's probably something that um, the Raptors have already figured out and they already realized and they used him a lot at the middle of the floor. And then honestly, I think that, you know, if he's going to score really, like I don't think him, or if he's going to be effective offensively, it doesn't really make sense to park him in the corner. He doesn't really do much for you there. He can't really cut all that much from, from the corner. I mean, it's really just, you know, a baseline cut. It's, it's a little simple. And he's just not good enough of a shooter where, like, if you put him in the baseline and park him in the corner, his guy's just going to help off. And even in preseason, we've seen guys leave him open, right? So it's not like a, he's not willing to shoot. I think he, he is willing to shoot, but I just don't think he'll shoot, like, even, let's say, 33% at minimum is what you would want to see a guy shoot in order for him to take some of the shots. 
I don't even know if he will get to 33%. So you got to give him the ball a little bit, keep him up the top of the floor. And I think that does bring an interesting question as to, okay, so when Pascal, OG, and Scotty are all healthy and they all want to play in the middle of the floor, how does the spacing work? And that's something where the Raptors might need to stagger the lineup just a little bit, uh, at least for them to all fit offensively. But then again, I think the Raptors are also looking at it like, look, we know we're not going to be that good offensively. How good can we get defensively? And if you could put Scotty on the floor with Pascal and OG, I don't know who the center is going to be, Ken Birch or Precious. Honestly, you can maybe even go without a center sometimes. With Fred as well, as as one of the most elite point-of-attack defenders, I think that's what they're looking at. Uh, and they know they're not going to be a perfect team on both sides of the floor. But uh, defensively, they can use Scotty in so many ways. And uh, that's rare to say about a rookie, but I really do believe that. I think he's going to come in and be a high-impact defender. Yeah, I think... What's interesting to me is, okay, so they have all these quote unquote interchangeable, like switchable six foot eight, six foot nine long defenders, which you would think makes the team ripe to play like a switching scheme. Mm-hmm. And they're all, I mean, maybe not Scotty yet, but like Pascal, OG, like even Fred, who can definitely like handle bigger players on switches. Those guys are all very good individual defenders who can lock it down one on one. So, why then? I mean, it's just preseason. And also, like, I don't want to bring too much carryover from last year into this year. But schematically, what is with the impulse to play this hyperactive, like, blitzing style when you're set mm-hmm. up so well to switch and handle, like, you know, one-on-one assignments as well as probably any team in the league? Like, why are you putting yourself in rotation time after time after time? That's a great question, and uh, I think if you ask Nick, what he will say is that he prefers to get his players to play really aggressively, especially at the start of the season, almost over-aggressively, as you're mentioning right now, and then dial them back. He, he fundamentally believes that, you know, he sort of – you can't really wind guys up, but you can sort of tune them down just a little bit defensively. So that's my hope. But, of course, having watched Nick and his defensive teams and uh, for the three years, two of which have been elite, by the way, so it's not like this is like a nitpick or anything, uh, he just wants to play that way all the time anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's a great excuse, you know. <laughs> but uh, I, I would say that last season it really didn't work because they had no credible rim protection. So it's, and, and also two small guards up top. Like, that was a really bad combo. I think there will... At, this season, they will only have one small guard on the floor at once. Maybe at times you'll see Fred and Dragic, but it won't be a main feature. Like it's not like Dragic can play forty minutes the way Kyle played forty minutes and Fred played forty minutes. Um, and then I I do think that with this team, switching is something that they will definitely do more of. But I think at the start of the games, they generally like to pressure and swarm the ball because they need to feed so much off turnovers. Like they know offensively. If they're going to play half court most of the time, well, I mean, I guess you play half court most of the time anyway. But if you're going to play half court like 90% of the time, the Raptors are going to be a, a bottom five team offensively. Maybe, a, yeah, probably bottom five. But if uh, if they get out in transition, and even last year when they were not a good team, they were still really good in transition, or they still played a lot in transition. But I think, honestly, they just want to look at their strength and they want to double down. And part of that is just, okay, fine, you play a little bit more gamble, uh, you know, of a scheme defensively you swarm the ball you, you know you never let any star player play one-on-one you you aggressively double team them Tobias Harris is in the post double team them, you know like I think some of those things they can maybe like take out of their scheme just a little bit but for the most part they're playing defense to fuel their offense as well and uh that's Nick's philosophy and I don't know you know if that's necessarily a, a bad thing 
Um, I, I do think that it's really just picking your spots, right? Because it's one thing if Embiid's posting up and you're guarding him with Precious Achua and or like Ken Birch, you're like, yeah, of course, double team him. But the aggressive double teaming at the three-point line is something that I would like to see the Raptors do less of. In the post, I'm okay with because the rotations are a little bit shorter. Whereas if you're like double teaming at the top of the three-point arc, I mean, if it's Steph or Dame, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. Otherwise, like, I don't know, maybe dial that back just a little bit. Let your length do some of the work for you because you don't have all this length on the floor just so that you can put two of them at one spot. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you're you're actually shrinking your length. So. And that's the thing. Like, they, you know, they've done that in the past. Like, they, they'll blitz DeMar DeRozan. Like, they'll blitz Jimmy Butler above the three-point line. It's like, yo, you can just go under that screen or switch it, and, like, you'll probably be okay with the wing defenders that you have. So that's that's the area where it frustrates me. I agree about like the necessity of forcing turnovers and fueling their offense, but like there's obviously the downsides to that, which we saw last year. Like you foul the hell out of everybody, and I think lead the league in opponent free throw rate, and then mm-hmm. you are often scrambling, which leaves the glass unattended, and you're giving up a ton of offensive boards. So um, they yeah. got to be able to do it, I think, in a way that involves some measure of discipline, but. I think, you know, so like shifting back over to the other end of the floor, I guess, like you mentioned having Scotty, OG, Pascal, all of whom you want to spend some time playing in the middle of the floor and there only being like a certain measure of space in the middle that can be occupied by, you know, one or maybe two of those guys at the same time. I I think, you know, the downside, like on defense, maybe you have all these guys who are like-sized and you can switch everything offensively it can make it a bit of a challenge. I feel like because the, the opposing defense can do the same thing. Like you can't, I think it'd be really cool to see like an OG Scotty Barnes pick and roll, but like they're the same size and their defenders are going to be the same size. And like the defense is just going to switch that as well. So yeah. I think I know Samson, um, you know, who, who is doing the Raptors Republic podcast that you used to run uh, has mentioned this, but like the Raptors were last in the preseason in pick and roll frequency or like the percentage of their mm-hmm. offense that came out of the pick and roll. So I'm curious how they make the offense work uh, moving forward with this kind of leg-sized group and a group that isn't, you know, really geared toward running a ton of pick and roll. Obviously, Fred ran a ton of pick and roll last year, but it's not like he's some gangbusters pick and roll point guard either. He's, yeah. I think his, his biggest skill lies in like his off-ball movement, his relocation, his catch and shoot game. So... You know, what does the offense look like moving forward with this group? You know, not just for this coming season, but long term. And then, you know, maybe that can just sort of like lead into a conversation about OG and where his game goes from here. Because if if what we saw in the preseason is real, like I don't think it's out of the question that he eventually grows into that number one, even though I said on your show like literally a week ago that I didn't ever see that happening. Uh, yeah, no, I love it, man. I, I love that you're flipping it already. No, I, I think, look. That's a great point by Samson, and it's it's really interesting to see the Raptors cons- uh, under Nick Nurse, actually specifically under Nick Nurse, because I don't think there was a lot of invention under Dwayne Casey. Shout out Pound the Rock. Uh, but under Nick, he just really wants to reinvent and tinker things all the time. And I think it's it, it actually comes from a really good place. I think it's going to serve the Raptors' vision long term. He's almost trying to revolutionize offense in a way, I guess, no, not revolutionized. That, that's too dramatic. That sounds like he's trying to do it for other teams. He's really just trying to find a new way for his team to be able to succeed on offense. And I think that recognizing not always playing pick and roll makes sense for this team. There's not that many great pick and roll players. Kyle was pretty good in the pick and roll, especially in, in those like, 
you know, because Kyle will go through hot and cold months. Yeah. When Kyle went through the months where he was like 40% on pull-up threes, incredible in pick and rolls. And always, always and an incredible passer out of the pick and roll is the thing. Exactly. Yeah. And then then not only did Kyle cool off a little bit from three in certain months, but then also he's playing pick and roll with Aaron Baines. And he'll give him the ball into the basket. And you're like, all right, dunk the ball, Aaron. And then catch, he won't. Catch the ball first. <laughs> and then right. worry yeah. about dunking it. So, like, it, it, I think the Raptors kind of moved away from that. And I think even now, there's not a great pick-and-roll finisher on the team. If anything, actually, Chris Boucher might be the best pick-and-roll finisher. Yeah. Really good in the pick-and-pops last year. And honestly, even going downhill towards the basket, he goes so fast. He's so gangly. He goes so hard to the basket. He draws a fair number of fouls. And, um, you know, he's actually a decent finisher despite being slim. But I think... You're absolutely right. Like the Raptors don't really have that pick and roll guy, so it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to do that. So then the question is, okay, in the modern NBA, if you're not going to run a lot of pick and roll, how are you going to run your offense, right? Especially half court. Well, I think a couple of things. Number one, pick and roll is like one of those play types that's a little hard to uh, fully define because what do you call like Scotty Barnes dribbling the ball in the middle of the floor, keeping this dribble alive, going one way, seeing what's there, going the other way, seeing what's there, seeing nothing's there, and then all of a sudden flip that into a dribble handoff. Like, that's not really a pick and roll, but it also kind of is. It, at least the idea of, like, bringing your defenders together and then somebody either popping out or going to the basket and then someone either driving or, or pulling up. Like, it still has the same sort of mechanical function of a pick and roll. I think you'll see a lot of dribble handouts on the Raptors. That's something that, that Nick really likes to do. Um, it's just it sort of... I guess it's essentially a pick and roll, but you know, if done the right way, uh, or ideally, or based on sort of the way he sort of envisions, there's a little bit more motion to it. You might get the defenders moving just a little bit, one step off the side, get them open. But also, this team is going to play a lot out of the post. This team is going to play a ton in transition. Like I think the Raptors probably want to play. 30% of their possessions in transition, which I don't even know if has been done before. Like, I might have to go back and watch some of the Showtime, you know, Lakers and, and attract their possessions because all their highlights are in transition. I don't know how they just transition their way to, like, five titles. But um, also, the basketball is different in the 80s. Guys score, like, 150 points, no problem. But yeah, the collective league yeah. fitness probably wasn't where it's at now. Like, you could, if, yeah. you, if you were a team of fit guys, you could probably just run circles around most teams in the league. That, that sounds about right. Um, they also had a lot of extracurriculars off the court, which I guess these current NBA players still do, but definitely not in the same uh, uh, type or caliber. But, yeah, I, I think they're going to play a lot through the post. I think they're going to even not necessarily isolate, but just try to, like, get guys into specific mismatches because that's all. And one of the other things is if you're six foot nine, there has to be mismatches somewhere. And we're not even necessarily talking about mismatches like, you know, LeBron – shuffling through three, four screens so he can get Steph Curry posted and then he attacks that mismatch. I mean, even mismatches like you're six foot nine and you're playing shooting guard or maybe even small forward. The other guy guarding you is six three, six four. Go to the glass. I think they really want to get offensive rebounds. I think it's sort of like they're trying to reverse engineer uh an offense without the main component because I think the the pick and roll is like the engine for most offenses. And I think the Raptors are trying to like uh, do as much as possible around that engine. It's probably going to not result in that efficient of an offense, but based on sort of the personnel they have, like that's that's kind of what they need to do is crash the boards, play in the post, definitely have playmakers in multiple positions, sort of randomly improv a little bit in terms of their, I guess, not even improv, be unpredictable, and then you know hope that uh, a lot of nights that their three-point shooters are hot. It's If it doesn't sound that convincing, it's because it's not. It's not going to be that good of an offense. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's going to be like a bit of a jerry-rig, right? Where they're just trying to create advantages through chaos and constant motion. And it's going to be tough without without a lot of movement shooters on the team. Like, that's the thing that I think is really... Like, you can have an offense where there isn't, like, a ace pick-and-roll ball handler that you still make work really effectively because there are a lot of guys who are threats to shoot on the move, and that still, like, has a, a real gravitational pull on the defense that can open up seams, but I feel like the Raptors don't have either of those things, and so it's going to be really interesting to see how they manage to sort it out. But with OG, if... Some of the self-creation stuff that we saw from him in the preseason is real, which I don't know. I mean, it's a small sample. Um, you mentioned like the, the the knock on him is like he doesn't really have a bag. And, and granted, like he's still young and he's shown a ton of development in a short period of time. So maybe he can get there. I think the thing with him, like he's a little bit stiff, right? Like you look at like the best creators, ball handlers, pull up shooters in the league. And it's like there's a fluidity there where mm. you know their upper body and lower body can seem to be moving in two different directions at once whereas with OG You're like describing OG like he has the mobility of a lego figure like <laughs> he's look i'm just saying like he's he's quite okay the reason that I, that i see like that OG hasn't become a movement shooter right like he can shoot the ball yeah. really well and he's even showing now that he can potentially shoot it pretty well off of the dribble but you're not seeing him like sprinting off of pin downs or like turning yeah. and firing off a dribble handoffs because he kind of needs to like turn and like square his whole body to the rim before yeah. he can let that shot fly. Like there's a little bit of a mechanical bent to mm-hmm. the way that he moves. Yeah. And I don't know, like, is that just the way that his body is built and that's always going to be a limiting factor for him? Or is that something that he can overcome? That's, that's, I guess my, the thing that I'm looking at. And like, obviously like the ball handling has come a long, long way, but the, the handle's still got to be tightened up in order for him to be that guy. But like, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think, is that in OG's future? Like, is he going to be the the guy, like the number one offensive initiator, like sometime in the next two, three years? I, I think if he is going to develop into that, I think going back to our point earlier about pick and rolls and the Raptors avoiding them, he's going to have to play the pick and roll. I, I honestly think that like, unless you're a center, and unless you're like the very elite of centers, right? And you're talking about Embiid, you're talking about Jokic, you're maybe talking about Carl Anthony Towns. Uh, you're gonna need to run a lot of pick and rolls. Like every other position, if you're gonna be a star at that position, you need to be able to run the pick and roll, be efficient out of the pick and roll. You need to be able to set guys up. You need to be able to score. Probably ideally at all three levels, um, unless you're Giannis, and, and you're so good at one level that it doesn't matter about the rest. And I think that's probably the development you need to see from OG. Okay, if he's got the ball handling down and he can't necessarily always shake his guy one-on-one because, as you mentioned, he kind of, you know, he moves like he has a bad back or, you know, it's like seeing a minivan in, in, on the highway. Like, okay, fine. Use the screen and sort of use that to get you an advantage going downhill. So I do want to see maybe, honestly, a couple more pick and rolls with OG this season. The one issue with that is, like, as you mentioned, the Raptors have so many like-sized guys that you probably see a lot of teams switching on him. But, you know, his one-on-one skill set now, especially him being able to get that shot off, I actually wouldn't even mind him attacking a switch. You know, especially if he gets a shorter guy on him. Mm-hmm. I actually would almost rather see, like, a 1-3 pick and roll with OG handling. I guess a 3-1 pick and roll rather than a 3-5 pick and roll. Because I, I think he probably will do a better job of attacking smaller guys who so can shoot over the top. But um, that's probably what you need to see. Because I, I think that the... 
it's great to be able to be able to have that self creation aspect to his game. But I think I also want to see him create for others and um, and and honestly just ramp up his usage overall without seeing a drop in efficiency. That's one of the issues that happened to Pascal was, man, Pascal was super efficient as the third option, yeah. one most improved player. Honestly, had a lot of sequences where playing one on one. Now all of a sudden, when you get to the top level and you're proven to be an effective one on one player, t- turns out. You're not going to play one-on-one very often unless you have a lot of spacing on the floor and the Raptors clearly don't. So then how do you sort of adapt and try to handle that? And so I think if OG is going to become the man, that's still like two, three seasons down the line because I still think that he's sort of taking step by step. The nice thing really right now is that he can get a shot off and he can get a good shot off almost every time in isolation. And that is encouraging because I think that is something that almost – well. I don't actually. I, I don't know. I don't think any other player on the roster has that specific ability. Pascal, kind of, he can get a shot off, but I don't think he's good enough of a shooter, the way OG is, where he can uh, make those shots at a consistent level where you want him to isolate that much. So that's where I'm at with OG. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point, and it's like the same with Pascal with the pick and roll thing, right? Where you you want Pascal running pick and roll with Smalls as his screeners rather than with bigs. Yep. Um, I do think with OG, it's like going to be totally dependent on like which bigs are defending the Raptors centers because the centers are basically the same size as the wings. So it's like an opposing team could stick a wing on like, you know, Ken Birch or Precious Achua and be more or less fine. And in that case, yeah, you're opening yourself up to just a switch and playing one-on-one. But if, you know, if the opposing team is throwing like a, you know, if they're playing the Pacers, for instance, and it's like DeMontis Sabonis is the guy who's guarding Precious Achua, then I think, you have the opportunity to run a three, five pick and roll and like OG can actually take advantage of a, you know, a slower ground bound center in space, but really quickly, because we've gone longer on this segment than I, than I had anticipated. Um, Fred, the, the last of these four guys, not the last in terms of any kind of hierarchical ranking, but the last one that we're going to hit on here, I'm curious to what extent you feel like he has sort of maxed out his capabilities or if you feel like he still has room to grow, I mean, there are certainly areas where you would like to see him improve, but like how much better is Fred going to get? Because for now, like they're extremely dependent on his off the dribble creation, his pull up shooting. But as far as like him potentially being like, I thought he deserved to be an all star last year. But as far as him being that Lowry level, like consistent floor raiser franchise guy, I feel like he maybe has a lower chance of being that guy than any of the other three guys we just talked about. Yeah, absolutely. I think the nature of Fred's game is that it's going to lend itself to being underrated. Um, honestly, a lot of Kyle comparisons there, a lot of Kyle parallels. I think Kyle at his peak also was just genuinely so much better than Fred is currently. But also at the same time, Fred at the same age as Kyle, when he broke out, is very comparable. Uh, very, very comparable. With Fred, how much better can he get? Okay, so this is the funny thing is, this question has probably been posed when he joined the Raptors. <laughs> <laughs> as an undrafted for, uh, training camp signing yeah. in 2016. And every year there, And the year after. Every single year this gets asked. I do think he improves. I think if you look at tangible areas where he is weak, the mid-range game, yeah. he can hit that shot but doesn't use it that often, um, doesn't get to it as, if, as much as maybe he could. Um, obviously finishing at the basket. The thing is, it's not like he doesn't have the skill to finish at the basket. We see Fred make really nice difficult reverse layups you know the spin off the glass like he has the whole package 
the whole issue is he's five foot ten, <laughs> so he's just not gonna win that battle regardless. Like he's not Kyrie, for example, and even Kyrie is like six six two six three, right? So that's a big difference there. Um, you want to see that part improved? Honestly, some of it is now just sort of um, the. It's almost off the court. It's the mentality. Like, how does he improve as a leader of the team? I think he's already been looked at that um, in previous seasons, but I think he's the guy now in terms of uh, leadership. How is he going to keep the ship afloat? Is he going to sort of keep everybody aligned on the same message? Is he going to continue to command people's respect? Is he going to be able to iron things out when they need to be ironed out and sort of speak up and, and, and have everyone follow? That's a big part of the team that, you know, look, it's not as sexy as maybe if, if Fred all of a sudden started hitting floaters like Trey Young, but it's something that is probably just as important to the Raptors having a successful season is having that guy who can bring that. So once again, I'm saying that I'm, I'm not betting on Fred. It's unbelievable. I can't believe he gets disrespected. But I generally think that that's, that's the area that the Raptors need more of this year. He's already a very good player. He's not topped out as a player, but... I think that last year, for example, he showed improvements in his playmaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember one play where he drove into the paint, drew like three defenders and threw it opposite corner to Norm. I believe you tweeted it out. It's been in my bookmarks forever. I don't know why I bookmarked it, but I guess it was just a really nice pass. No, I remember it. It was was against Miami. They trapped him in the pick and roll. He strung it out, like dribbled out of the trap, and then one hand like slung a a cross-court pass to the weak side corner for a three. Like that was just... Mm. I think in a lot of cases previously he would pick up his dribble or he would leave his feet to pass, but that was, I remember that play specifically and being really impressed by it. Like he's definitely, he adds stuff to his game every year. So I agree. I don't think he's completely maxed out, but I I am curious, like where his game can go from here. Like, can he ever be look like Lowry was also like five eleven, right? But he still had seasons where he was shooting 62, 63, 64% at the rim. Whereas well, Lowry has that burst, you know, like he's just strong as hell. Yeah. Plus, he was really good at foul drawing for, I, I guess he still is. He just doesn't get the calls anymore. Yeah. Well, but that's, <laughs> but there was a period where Cobb can get to the line like six, almost seven times a game, which is like, maybe that's drives, like, yeah. like Fred's got to embrace the grift, man. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, but to, if he doesn't get the calls, then we're just going to be complaining. We're like, why the hell did you do that? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But I think, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, trying to, trying to get to the line more often could, could be some low hanging fruit for him because I don't know, maybe it's more difficult actually now because uh, to be fair, like a lot of Kyle's free throws were coming on like three point jump shots where he was sort of like feeling the guy on his hip and, and leaning yep. in, into him, which is not going to be called anymore. So maybe, you know, Fred can't do that, but um, yeah, with Kyle is also just like a lot of like deception and deceleration and getting guys to run into him. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think the strength is a good point And like the, you know, the lower body strength, like his ability to keep guys away from the ball. Like he could shield the ball with his body in a way that maybe Fred can't. Um, yeah. But definitely just like inside the arc scoring in general is going to be a big pressure point for Fred. And it's like, if the question of whether he can take a meaningful next step, I think hinges on like his ability to score inside the arc. But I think that's enough time spent on the Raptors. We're going to have a, a very little time to talk about the rest of the East, but we'll take a quick break <laughs> and we'll come back and we'll do that. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already... 
Download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Will, we spent an hour talking about the Raptors. Uh, mm. I feel I feel satisfied by that conversation. So let's talk a little bit about the rest of the conference that they're going to be competing in. In the East this year, which is the non-Raptors team that interests you most? Okay, so I'm pretty certain that I don't think the Bulls are going to be that successful because <laughs> that team looks awful defensively on paper. Yeah. Nick Vucevic as the anchor for a team that's going to play for majority of their time, a four-point guard lineup. <laughs> okay, I mean, sometimes you'll see Pat Williams in there, but they're, there's going to be extended stretches where they're playing Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, Alex Caruso, and uh, Lonzo Ball, along with Nick Vucevic in the middle. Now, I will say Caruso is genuinely a good defender. Yeah. And Lonzo is... Pretty good defender as well, especially how disruptive he is with the passing or with the deflections and stuff like that and the steals. But that does not seem like that would work. And yet, when I've seen them play in preseason so far, I'm like, wow, this really meshes together. Maybe it meshes together because they're playing Cleveland in preseason. But I also think that, like, man, offensively, this team is going to be really hard to guard. Like, you kind of have to give up something. And maybe you would say the three-point shooting isn't actually that strong because – out of that group, Zach Levine clearly is a really good shooter, but DeMar is not a three-point shooter. Caruso's average, even Lonzo, he improved a lot, but I don't know. I still I, I still feel like most teams are generally okay with leaving Lonzo open, whether that's the right move or not, I don't know. And then uh, Vucevic, I mean, I guess he could shoot, but mostly he's better in the post. Uh, that team is just so interesting to me because I feel like that can go like – it could really work and they could be like really dynamic offensively. I think the fact that they even have – four guys who could be point guards essentially is so hard to guard as a group. But also I I'm genuinely convinced this is going to be one of the worst uh, defensive teams in the league. So I don't really know what is going to happen with that team, but I'm probably going to watch the bulls quite a bit just because I'm, I'm intrigued with the, the, the roster makeup they have. Yeah. I think that's a great pick. I mean, I think that, you know, the big question that I have had is what are they going to do with the four? Like how, how much can they really depend on Pat Williams, who is like their only viable that's, that's the answer. defensive option at the four, right? Like, I, I do yeah. imagine that we'll be seeing DeMar play the four a lot. And yeah, it's just... <laughs> play it's, the it's, four it's, is just... Te- yes, technically he's the he's the second tallest person on the yeah. floor. Um, but no. But yeah, no, I think, four. look, it's just going to be... It, it, it's tough to craft an above average, even like a top 20 defense when there are just so many like pick and roll combinations that you can attack. Like you can put mm. Levine and Vooch in a pick and roll and have a lot of success. You could put DeMar and Vooch in a pick and roll and have a lot of success because those guys are, I mean, DeMar especially is just going to get hung up on screens and then you're going to have Vooch trying to defend in space. And that's going to be a big challenge. I do think it helps that like Lonzo's a really good help defender. Caruso's mm-hmm. a really good help defender. Even if those oh, guys, they're going to be helping. <laughs> they'll be, I mean. they'll even, be asked even, to help. Even if those guys aren't involved they'll in the central action, like they're going to be able to, they're going to be able to pinch and tag, yep. and yeah. you know, in some way contribute to a team getting a defensive stop potentially. Even if they're not being put in that central action, that's going to be really important for them. And then I actually think, you know, as far as like, I think Caruso is a great pickup for that reason because 
mm-hmm. he can yep. be a really effective helper, but just as an on-ball guy at the point of attack, he's so good as a chaser. Yeah. And I, I think it goes when drop defense doesn't work or when it looks bad, everyone always wants to blame the big. It is as important or maybe even more important, like what the on-ball guy is doing and, and yeah, what kind absolutely. of rear view pressure you're getting. And are you able to run somebody off the three-point line and, and get back in contact when you're chasing over top? And I think Caruso does that pretty much as well as anybody in the league. And that's going to help Fuch out uh, a whole lot on the back line. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what it looks like. And I think the offense has a chance to be super dynamic. And also, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just pretty much watch Demar like wherever he goes. I, I, I love that. Oh dude. yeah, and it's. I honestly, I've like enjoyed watching him more like since he's not on the Raptors anymore because I don't have to have <laughs> as much like skin in the game. Uh, and I don't have to be like yeah, as no. invested in like the successes and failures of the team that he's on. I can just sort of like root for him as an individual and like enjoy the quirky aesthetics of his game. Like it's a much more enjoyable viewing experience. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think the team I'm most interested to watch. I mean, it's hard not to say Brooklyn just because of like everything that's yeah, going on there. But uh, I also think Miami sneakily has a chance. Well, maybe not that sneakily. I think Miami has a chance to be super, super interesting. And I'm in a good way or in a bad way because uh, Miami the regular season has. I mean, I feel like they're they're getting a lot of attention, obviously because they won the offseason, getting Kyle Lowry. I think this is the biggest <laughs> acquisition any team had made. But at the same time, Miami has really not been that good of a regular season team since they had the big three heat and even before that when they had Dwayne Wade they just struggled to win like 50 games now of course like that's not the most important thing they're right. built for the playoffs it's clear they don't care about winning 50 games quote unquote but I don't I don't know how good they are going to be with their depth either but what's what's intriguing to you uh, about Miami I, I just like on an aesthetic level uh, I've always like enjoyed watching their mm-hmm. offense because it is you know, you mentioned Nick Nurse liking to tinker and revolutionize offense. I mean, Eric Spolstra has run like a very intricate and not pick and roll oriented offense the last few years that I think has been surprisingly dynamic and really fun to watch. It totally fell apart against the Bucks in the playoffs last year. I think it fell apart for reasons that Kyle Lowry really helps address, like just having a guy who I don't think they had anybody on the team last year who was like, able to be a, like a significant threat with the ball in their hands to like either hit a pull-up jump shot or make a pass to an open player on the perimeter or diving to the rim. Like they just didn't have anybody who approximated that. And I think he fits in that system so well because of all the things that he can do as an off-ball mover. And as a screener, it's just, I think stylistically, it's such a good fit. And you know, if they come to a situation where they kind of have to rely on just like running a bit more basic pick and roll to bend a defense out of shape, then I feel like Lowry sort of helps solve that problem for them as well. And then I think they just have a chance to be really, really nasty defensively. Like that trio of him or the quartet really of him, Bam, Butler and PJ Tucker. I I don't know what it's going to look like in the regular season, but as a playoff defense, I feel like that is going to be right up there and it's going to be no fun to play against them. Their depth is definitely an issue, but Hero looked really good in the preseason. So we'll see if he can have kind of like one of those non-linear jumps that we've seen from young players in the past, where maybe the second season doesn't go as planned. And I'm look, I'm not comparing him to Jason Tatum, but that's what happened with Tatum. Everyone was so mm-hmm. high on him after his rookie season. He had a really disappointing sophomore year, and then year three is where he really put it all together. Hero's not Jason Tatum. I don't know that that's going to happen for him, but like he could definitely like unexpectedly break out as a third year guy. And that would help a lot. And then like 
I feel like nobody's really talking about the fact that Miami signed Victor Oladipo for the minimum. Yeah, like, what, what's going on there? They're basically just pay, they're, they might be paying more than medical fees than <laughs> they're paying him a salary. That yeah. might be the first time in the NBA that's happened. But, yeah. uh, well, that's the big question. Is like how healthy actually is he? And I don't know the answer to that, but I do think it's not like they need him to get back to the level he was at in Indiana like three years ago. Like, and he shot the ball terribly after they got him in a trade last year for like the few games he played before he got hurt again. But if he can just play the way he played at like the start of last season and does that in in a sixth or seventh man role for them, that's like huge, huge surplus value that they're getting from that signing. And I think um, that would really go a long way towards solving some depth issues for them. I'm, I'm just, I think they're kind of a funky, interesting team with, you know, look, I don't, I don't buy into the whole heat culture thing in the way that cash does, but I just think on an aesthetic level, they're going to be pretty fun to watch. My next question for you is, which playoff team from last year is more, is most likely to fall into the lottery this year? Uh, and which East lottery team is most likely to jump into the playoffs? And I'm not counting play-in losers as playoff teams. Okay, fair. Uh, I would say the Knicks. Don't really trust the Knicks. Look, I get it. The Knicks were genuinely good last year. I still don't believe it. I'm sorry. I, I, it's not like I saw them in the playoffs and was like, wow, this team is showing me something. No, what they showed me was, okay, all right, this is kind of what it was. I think the Knicks, A, surprised a lot of teams last year, which sounds like it's not giving them credit. And it probably is. But I genuinely think a lot of teams were like, yo, it's the Knicks. <laughs> and then they were got then they got punked. Like over and over and over again, yeah. they got punked. And to the point where the Knicks got so much momentum that in March, they just hit the ground running and they were just steamrolling teams. And that was honestly really fun to watch. I, I actually genuinely liked watching the Knicks last year, which is the first time I've said that since, I don't know, Lynn Sanity. Like, it's actually been a while. But I also think the Knicks, so being fourth in defense, I understand the three-point shooting, whatever, it's fine. I get it. Teams shot really poorly against the Knicks, you know, whatever. That might even out. I'm just looking at it in terms of their point of attack defense has just taken a big hit. When you're starting Kemba and Evan Fournier, and that's going to put a lot of pressure on the rest of your defense to be really, really solid. And I think RJ is a good defender. I think, obviously, they have good rim protectors with, you know, Nerns Dewell. And, you know, he finally got his uh, deal finally. No thanks to <laughs> Rich Paul. And, and, you know, Mitchell Robinson, I guess, will be healthy. And they'll have genuine rim protection. But I do think their defense is going to slip a little bit. I also think, honestly, the way Tips plays his guys – the first year is always going to look so, so, so good because he's going to get maximum from everybody. Everyone's going to buy in. And I think that kind of eventually it diminishes. And I, and maybe I'm just looking at it from, I don't know, uh, what he did in Chicago or what he did in Minnesota. But I kind of maybe see a similar pattern playing out with the Knicks. They also just didn't genuinely make that much of an improvement, I think, in the offseason. I, obviously, I think Kemba and Evan Fournier give them a dynamic offensively that – they didn't necessarily have when you're you know talking about Alfred Payton or whatever, but I, I still don't think that the the juice is worth the squeeze here to to borrow a Brian Windhorst term. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's not it, it's not doing it for me. So I'm I'm saying the Knicks fall out a little bit. I think I mean that's my pick as well, and I actually think they did get better in the off season. I just think there was a lot of smoke and mirrors to what they did last year, and that yeah. they could see like a big downturn in their record despite having actually improved as a team. Like I thought getting Kemba and Fournier, whatever you think of, obviously like Kemba deal is great. Like the acquisition cost of Fournier, you can quibble yeah, about, but like they needed to upgrade their shot creation in the backcourt. Like they, 
Derrick Rose was their most reliable creator in the playoffs. And he did an admirable job of that, but that's not a place you want to be where you have to play Derrick Rose like 40 minutes a game and are relying on him to run your offense. Like, Please, that's that's Tim's whole strategy is <laughs> I want to play Derrick Rose 40 minutes a game. Um, no, it's not. But I mean, look, I, I do think that that is – they definitely improved their offense. I just don't think that how, – how much of that is actually a tangible improvement. Like in terms of in the playoffs, for example, is, is Kemba Walker going to be the difference maker for you to get out of the first round or even – Well, 40, you, you were know? saying like they're not going to make the first round, so they won't have to worry about it. Yeah. They're, they're falling out You're of the right. playoffs in our estimation. There you go. Um but yeah, I think, look, I, I do think their offense is going to be better, but I just, you know, you mentioned the opponent three-point shooting, which was like the lowest in the league for any team last year. And as Raptors fans, you know, we can attest that that stuff doesn't necessarily carry over from one year to the next. Uh, the Raptors defense went from second to, I think, 16th last year based in large part on the fact that opponents went from shooting the lowest percentage on threes against the Raptors to shooting one of the highest. You know, that look, there are certain ways, I guess, that you can control an, an opponent's shot quality, but I, I don't think there's some voodoo magic going on there. And I think there's going to be some regression. And honestly, on, on the Knicks also were like third in offensive three-point percentage. Like, I don't think that's necessarily going to repeat itself, even if they did improve their offensive personnel. Like, am I? are we banking on Julius Randle to shoot the ball this year the way that he did last year? I'm not so sure about that. Um all right, which team, which which lottery team is jumping into the play uh, the playoff mix then? Well, okay, well, lottery. I mean, I guess I'm saying the Raptors because I do feel pretty good about them. I genuinely think that they probably top out at six seed, mm-hmm. and most likely are sort of in yeah, six, seven, eight. I mean, that's not really that much separation. I don't, I don't even think. But I think the Raptors jump up into that mix, and we talked a lot about the Raptors. So honestly, I think in terms of like a more tangible jump, I really do like the Celtics a little bit this year. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the one year the Celtics aren't like being like incredibly overhyped by the uh, largely New England bred uh, media, but uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. I think Al Horford coming back does bring them a lot of balance. Um, he was pretty good for the Thunder last year to the point where they had to shut him off. They were like, uh, Al Horford, just say you tore your peck again for the fourteenth time. Your peck is gone. Um, he just like I I think he brings spacing to their their team and also a bit of defensive. Uh, presence to goal you know he's more solid defensively than obviously than someone like Robert Williams who's sort of more all or nothing but I, I think you kind of need that and I think he, he's gonna pass the ball he, he's always been a good distributor in that sense he's just a nice complimentary player to put around guys like uh Tatum and, and Brown and even though that's it's a step backwards literally because they brought him back after trading him I still think that he, Horford will probably bring more to their team than Kemba did provide last year I actually think honestly bringing in Schroeder as much as Schroeder took a lot of heat, I think as a two-way player, I honestly think that that's a very useful piece for the Celtics. I'm concerned about their depth. Like, I really genuinely don't really know how many guys they can rely on off the bench, and depth is going to be so huge. But I also think that the Celtics last year didn't have a lot of depth, and they had really, really uh, a hard time with COVID as well. So hopefully that doesn't hit them as hard this year, although as we speak, uh, Jalen Brown and, and Al Horford are out with, uh, with COVID. So, you know, maybe that doesn't happen, but... At the same time, I, I just look at the Celtics roster and, and their talent, and I'm like, honestly, like, why is that team not in the mix to be top four? I think the depth kind of is the reason. Yeah. That's and true. last year, there was sort of, like, outside of those two wings, it was just, like, not 
a ton of reliable playmaking. And like, I think it was just too much. Like those guys have come a long way as playmakers, but I don't necessarily know if you want them to be like your primaries and everything's running through them. Cause that led to their offense being pretty stilted and stagnant. And I think with Horford back and also with Robert Williams, presumably taking the starting center job there and he can pass the ball. Like I I think they're going to run more, more stuff like through their big man facilitators uh, to try and balance things out a bit. Cause it was, their offense was, was a tough watch last year. I'll say that. Um, but yeah. I think my, my pick for this is just the Bulls, and we talked about them already. I think, right. you know, for all the defensive question marks there, I just think, like, the talent, obviously, on the offensive side of the ball is just – I think there's just too much there for them to miss the playoffs. And I don't know – like, I, there are some people who are really optimistic about them who th- think they're going to get up to, you know, close to 50 wins. I'm not that high, but I think – Yeah, no, okay. I think, like, something in, like, the 44 to 47 win range for them is totally realistic. And I wouldn't be shocked at all if they made it in the top six and avoided the play-in altogether. So, um, yeah. so that's my pick. All right, last question here. Your conference finals prediction for the East. Uh, I'm going to go out of the box here and say the Brooklyn Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks. I mean, what do you want me to say? They're clearly the two best teams in the conference, mm-hmm. especially the two best playoff teams in the conference. I actually really don't know how that series is going to go because I think that the Bucks probably will add a couple more pieces uh, in the in sort of midseason, kind of the way they, they added P.J. Tucker last year. And honestly, with the Nets, it's just like, A, who's going to be healthy, and B, like, what the hell is going on with Kyrie? <laughs> like, yeah. is he going to be on the team by that point? Are we going to see Kyrie, you know, take his talents to Fox Sports? Like, we just don't know. Like, we just don't know. So, um, so it's all good. Okay, so I'll ask you this then just to, to close out here because I have my feeling about it and I'll see what you think. Let's say Kyrie doesn't play a single game this season and yep. no team wants to trade for him. So they just like literally get nothing out of that roster spot. Mm-hmm. Are the Nets to you still the favorite to win the Eastern Conference? Uh, yes, just because KD is the best player in the conference. The best playoff player. Regular season player, I, I think that, um, you know, Giannis is probably better. But playoff player, I think KD narrowly edges out Giannis. But I don't know. Uh, KD also had, like, a completely healthy year last year, which you never know with KD's. Not necessarily he's no, not he, injury prone. He missed half the he's, he's, Oh, that's right. He did. Yeah, so you never really know. But he had a completely healthy um, playoff run at yeah. least. And I, you know... It's hard to bank on that. Uh, whereas you know Giannis is going to be fully healthy like all the time. He's like the term. He's like LeBron. He's like the Terminator. Um, he's just never going to get hurt. So yeah, this dude hyper extended his knee and then like averaged forty yeah. points a game in the finals right afterwards. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Medical science has come such a long way. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, I I am of the mind that the Nets obviously it's contingent on health, but fully healthy even with no Kyrie, I peg them as the favorites in the East. I think. Harden and Durant is like so overwhelming on offense, especially like yeah. if you can like surround those guys with shooters and like, you know, which they have, which they have, they have so much good complimentary shooting too. That's the thing that's so hard about this team. Is, what are you going to do? Like, yeah. And like, yeah. you know, I've said this before and I know cash agrees. Like I think what, what's kind of amazing about the nets and how they're built now is like, they obviously have the top end talent, but they also have depth and it's like, you know, they can go out and like nab a guy like Paul Millsap on, uh, you know, off of the scrap heap and, they don't need yeah, him to do much more than play like 12 to 15 minutes a game for them, but he's going to give them some lineup flexibility. He's going to give them some really smart defense. And they have, you know, just an absolute knockdown shooter in Joe Harris, who you can put next to Durant and Harden and literally leave the defense with no good options about how they want to yeah. guard you. Um, and obviously you can stagger those two guys and just 
you know, just casually have like one of the best scorers of all time on the floor every minute of every game. It's like, it's a lot to deal with. And I think, you know, if Harden wasn't playing on one leg, if he was fully healthy at the end of that series last year, I still think that they beat the Bucks. So uh, even with no Kyrie, I kind of give them the edge here. But I'm I'm really excited. Like, I hope that that is the conference finals because... I hope so too because um, we need a rematch. Yeah. Honestly, I, I want to see most of the guys there available to play because, yeah, clearly those are the two best teams in the East. I mean, Miami improved and, you know, I, I don't even know. I guess Atlanta is improving, but yeah, no, those are the two best teams. Yeah, pending, I guess, what happens with Philly and, and what, if anything, they can get in a Ben Simmons trade if, if they want They better get Dame Lillard because if it's not Dame, then it's their Philly is not going there. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Beal could do a lot of things for them. He's, he's not on Dame's level, but. That would help them a lot yeah. if Beal was the guy. Anyway, all right, let's leave it there. Uh, Will, thank you so much for coming back on, celebrating the the bicentennial with us. Uh, of course. I, I told Cash I, I didn't feel right about him not being on episode 200, so we're just going to split episode 200 into two parts, like this, the last season of The Sopranos. So this will be 200A, wow. and I'll be back <laughs> with Cash next week for 200B. But, um, Will, I'm going to let you have the last word here. You know, Plug your show, whatever else you want to plug tell the listeners uh, what you've been up to since you left the pod yeah no a lot has happened the raptors won the championship immediately after i left so that was a that was definitely good timing and i definitely enjoyed that but no i'm what i'm doing right now is i'm i'm, I'm at sportsnet and i'm on the radio every day from 2 to 3 p.m eastern with another pound the rock i guess he what was he like if we were like lebron chris bosh and Dwayne wade the three of us then Alex is like Udonis Haslam. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I'm I'm on the air every day with Udonis Haslam. Uh, uh, so anyway, yeah, so that's you know that's the Raptor show. You can find that either you can listen to it live or you can uh, find the podcast. But honestly, most importantly, man, uh, this podcast is you know I'm so proud of it. I'm I'm really proud of just as a, a friend for both you and Cash in terms of what you guys have done with it. You guys have I mean I've, you guys have done tons of podcasts before, but you guys have really found your own voice. I love the two man dynamic between the two of you guys you know just running a small small pick and roll uh <laughs> so i love it man you guys are the fred and kyle backcourt and um no i, I honestly like i listen to you guys all the time and just uh here's to you know 300 when i'm back in, in two years so. <laughs> yeah man I, I look forward to having you back on for 300 but in the meantime keep killing it over there uh to our listeners subscribe or listen to uh, the raptor show with will Lou, or just listen to it live on the radio if that's the kind of thing that yeah that you still do. I mean, I it's it's tough to listen to the radio in this day and age, but if you're in the car at you know between the hours of two and three p.m., flip it over to five ninety. Listen to Will and Alex do their thing over there. They're doing a great job. Very much looking forward to this Raptors season, and uh, it's great talking to you, man. So for William Liu, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. <laughs> <laughs>